great to be with you. It's great to share God's word with you this morning. And it's especially a privilege when I can look out and see some familiar faces as well as many uh, new faces. And so it's great to be here with you. One of the things that I like to say often is when I'm with a new gathering of believers is that the connection that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ is more than even what I have with my own brother who is not walking with Jesus. Is that we, because of Christ's blood, have more in common than what I even do with my own blood and flesh. And so it's a great privilege for me to bring God's word for us this morning. And I've been told that you're in a series in Colossians. And I'm not going to continue that series, but as you've looked at Colossians, Colossians talks about how Jesus is preeminent, supreme over all things. You don't need Jesus plus a festival, or Jesus plus some food laws, or Jesus plus anything else, but that Jesus stands alone as preeminent. And so what I want to do this morning is look at how the gospel writer Mark talks about Jesus' preeminence. And so we'll look at Mark chapter 5. But before we do, why don't I pray for us again? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come now and incline our hearts to your words in this book. That you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we would see wondrous things in your law. That you would unite our heart to fear your name. And ultimately, Father, through all of this, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love and for your glory, we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, writes in the preface about two dangers that we can have with regard to the demonic realm. The first danger is this, that we're materialists. We only believe what we can see and what we can touch. We discount anything supernatural. And some of us may be there. The second danger is that we're fascinated and obsessed with all things in the demonic realm. We want to understand it. We want to delve into it. You know, use a Ouija board and explore it. And we live in a day and a time where both of those are true in our culture. We have people who only believe in what they can see. Can a biologist or a physicist reproduce it in a lab for me? Show me proof, and then I'll believe it. And yet, we're in a culture where many of you may have watched Twilight or read the books, and we're obsessed with zombies, and uh, all sorts of different TV shows that forward this agenda. So we're obsessed with understanding the occult, vampires and werewolves and mutants, and yet we want proof for everything that we're going to believe in. And so in this day and age, we're susceptible to both of these things. And so, how should we handle the demonic realm? Well, the question we need to ask this morning is how does the Bible handle it? How does this book, if that's the book that's going to shape us, if we're people who are conformed to this book, how should we think about that? And we should ask the question, who is Jesus, as we've been looking in the book of Colossians? Who is Jesus in relationship to the demonic realm? And there's a lot of uh, questions going on in culture that are going back and forth. You know, wrestlings of who is the person of Jesus. There's a, there's a documentary that came out not too long ago that was about the gospel of Jesus' wife. 
He's claiming that he was married and had a family. And then there's Jesus the pacifist. Many who would want to hold up Jesus as, you know, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Jesus is a pacifist. Or maybe it's Jesus the hippie. You know, he just wants you to, to love one another and all of us to get along. Or maybe it's Jesus the UFC fighter. Right? He kicks over tables and whips a bunch of animals and has his harshest words for the religious elite. There's prosperity gospel, Jesus. Jesus just wants all of us to be happy and ridiculously rich. Or perhaps motivational speaker. Jesus just wants you to have your best life now. And yet, for us as Christians, for those of you who trusted in Jesus this morning, we too can be susceptible to that. When you're going through a trial, when health seems uncertain, or unemployment, or whatever it may be, we can lose sight of who Jesus is for us. When times get tough, it's easy to think, wait, why me? Why this? And we lose sight of who Jesus is. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, what trials are you facing that cause you to lose sight of Jesus? What are the trials that you're facing this morning that cause you to lose sight of Jesus? And the question we want to answer then is, who is Jesus and what difference does he make in our life? If Jesus truly is preeminent, what difference does that make? Does all of that theology in Colossians of who Jesus is as preeminent and supreme and all of these superlatives, what difference does that make when the rubber meets the road? So turn with me to Mark chapter 5 in your Bibles or on your phones, and I'll read 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, and to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the reading of God's word. So what we see in this passage in Mark, what the gospel writer Mark has just done, and at the end of chapter 4, Jesus has just calmed a storm. And the disciples were in fear. They said, who is this man who even commands the waves and the storms? And essentially, he's taking this next passage to answer that question. Who is this man? Well, let me show you. Here's this next passage. And now we see this account. And what I hope to do this morning is walk through this passage, almost verse by verse, and look at the three groups that emerge. We get the demon-possessed man, we get the demons themselves, and then we get the townspeople. And what's happening is that Jesus is being revealed. The glory of Jesus, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus is being revealed. And these three groups react very differently. They respond very differently. And then I want to apply that for us. Now look with me at the first group, verses 1 to 5. Immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Jesus is immediately confronted the minute he gets down with this crazy man. My guess is he's not wearing a lot of clothes superhuman strength, these chains cannot bind him, crazy hair, coming out of the tombs, late at night, screaming his head off, and he falls down before Jesus. The words that describe this man, the word, I think, would be desperate. This is a desperate, desperate man. He's possessed by a demon, an unclean spirit. This is vastly different than the picture Hollywood portrays for us of what the demonic world looks like. It's not this beautifully manicured, well-makeup, dark eyes, you know, black fingernail polish vampire. It's not these mutants. It's this picture of sadness and desperation. And he's unclean. He's not only filled with a demon, but he lives among the tombs. And according to Jewish law, Anyone who touched a dead body or touched anything that had touched a dead body was unclean for seven days. And so this man is perpetually, permanently in a state of uncleanness. It's not just physically, but it's spiritually too. This man is the perfect picture of desperation. He's wild and uncontrollable. He's violent and destructive. If you look... Verse 4, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. This is a fitting description for an animal, not a man. People had formerly bound him up and now he's free of that. And yet his superhuman strength doesn't serve him, but hinders him, ostracizes him and condemns him to a life alone. Not only does he have that strength, he bruises himself day and night. And so this is a man who is brutally tormented. 
And perhaps the only way to dole the pain is by physically hurting himself. This is the picture of that first group, this man. He is like a raging storm, and he only finds respite among the tombs. He is tortured in another desperation. And what we see is that Jesus steps into this situation. Jesus is unafraid, unintimidated, to step into the chaos, into the storm of this man's life. And for all of us this morning, my guess is most of us are not in such a dire situation. And yet, we may know what it's like to be spiritually unclean, what it's like to be estranged from God because of our sin. We know what it's like to be overpowered, not by a demon, but perhaps by anxiety and fear and anger and impatience or lust, or pride, or sorrow. And so Jesus comes in to this situation. We have an ally with this man. We know what it's like to be unclean and to be in a desperate place. Now look with me at our second group. We see the destructive, demonic powers themselves. Verses 6 to 9. They fall down before Jesus and crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. And Jesus recognizes that this is not the man speaking, but the demons themselves. And he says, What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And so what we see here are these demonic powers. And all that they are, is destructive. They come, and instead of falling on Jesus and overpowering him, like this man probably would have been able to do, they fall before Jesus because they recognize his divinity. This preeminent and supreme person of Jesus, they fall before him instead of on him. And he says, swear to me that you won't torture me. Now just think about the Savior that you serve. Think about that for a moment. The demons themselves fall down before him. They bow their faces before the God of the universe. That's the God that you serve. The demons themselves humble themselves. When the demonic powers collide with the divine, demonic powers cry out for mercy. Often in TV, in movies, we think of Christians or people who are religious trying to fight vampires or werewolves and you know we kind of are timid and we hold up a cross or maybe some garlic or whatever it is and we're afraid and what what we see is that demonic powers bow before our Lord and Savior this is the God that we serve it's not a battle between good and evil but evil bows its knee and cries out for mercy before the God of the universe and, and the demons themselves are very, very ironic. They're fearing Jesus torturing them. They know that their judgment day is coming. And that they will be thrown into a lake of fire and be cast out from God's presence forever and ever. And so they fear torture and torment. And yet that's all that these demons do. They torture this man. And they torment him. That's all that they do. And so that's the very picture of insanity, doing the very thing that you fear. And that's what these demons are. 
And we learn not only is it demons, but there are multiple demons. It's not just one. Look at verse 8 and 9. What's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. Imagine the people around Jesus at that moment, right? They get goosebumps and they're like, whoa, this isn't just one. This is a multitude. Legion stood for four to 6,000 Roman soldiers. What we learned there is that it's not just one. It's many. It's many demons. And they're powerful. And they've taken residence in this man. In the same way, a Roman legion would occupy a city, a town at that time. These demons have occupied this man and have controlled him. And so we get the man, the demon-possessed man. We get the demons themselves. And now we come to this third group, the townspeople. And we don't learn very much about them other than they want Jesus to leave. They're pretty indifferent to the person of Jesus. And yet what is interesting about these people is this. According to Jewish law, pigs are unclean. We don't eat pigs. We don't touch pigs. Bacon is off limits. No sausage for you. No chorizo, no al pastor, none of that, right? So, why do they have a bunch of pigs in this region? Well, it's likely that these, this is an unclean Gentile territory. And not only that, they're involved in raising up a large number of pigs, 2,000 pigs. A normal herd might have been 150. So 2,000 pigs means they're doing this commercially. They're raising pigs commercially in order to feed Roman soldiers who are likely occupying this region. And so they're doing this for profit. And so what we have is an unclean man living in unclean conditions in a region devoted to unclean animals, surrounded by people in unclean occupations in an unclean Gentile territory. That's the picture that Mark is painting for us. This is as disgusting, as depraved, as wicked, as ugly as it gets. This is the red light district of that time. You don't go into a place like this, much less at night. And yet what we have is Jesus, our Savior, walking in and unafraid, takes these things head on. Not only is Jesus, is, not only is Jesus willing to enter into the tornado of this situation, of this man's life, into this region, but Jesus is going with a specific purpose. He's going with a mission. Jesus goes into the unclean places to bring about cleanliness. What we see actually in the, if, if you go back and you study Mark 4 and 5, what we see is that the gospel writer Mark has just painted a picture of Jesus being Lord over nature, calming the storm, and then we have this, Lord over the demonic realm, and then he goes into healing Jairus' daughter, the woman with bleeding for 12 years, and he's showing that Jesus is Lord over disease. But that's another parallel where the woman who's unclean, no one can touch her, everyone's like, whoa, she has cooties, we, we can't touch her, we'll not be able to go into the temple. She reaches out and touches Jesus, and what happens? She doesn't make Jesus unclean, Jesus makes her clean. And so that's the picture that's going on here. Jesus goes into the dark places and brings about cleanliness. And just, just for a point of uh, application for us at this point, Jesus recognizes and understands human brokenness. Jesus understands your hurt, your pain, your brokenness, whatever that may be. He enters into the chaos of your marriage, 
and of your family, and of your parenting, and of your heart, and of your hidden thoughts, and of your motives, Jesus enters in. We get a picture of a Lord who is powerful to take any problem you may bring to him. There is no sin, there is no struggle, there is no habitual sin, there is nothing you face that Jesus can't deal with. You will not surprise him with your family baggage, or with your history, or with how someone treated you, or how you've treated someone else. Jesus can meet you in all of those things. That's the Savior that you have this morning. Rest in that. That's the Savior that you have. So we have three groups. We have a desperate man. We have destructive, demonic powers. And we have indifferent townspeople. That's what we have. A man that is overcome with evil, the demons destroying everything in their path, and the townspeople who just want Jesus to leave. And so no matter how we come to Jesus, whether we're desperate, destructive, or perhaps even indifferent, this word is for us this morning. And so, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who's unafraid to step into the chaos of this world. Uh, As a dad of three kids, and with one on the way, sometimes, just occasionally, our house is a little bit chaotic, right? Uh, Someone's playing in their vomit, a diaper just exploded, someone's grabbed something and it's shattered across the floor, and the temptation is to say, honey, there's something going on there, and to pull out my phone and just withdraw, hide, hide from the chaos. And you've probably experienced it too at work. You just want to slip into a coat room or a janitor's closet and just think, oh, what's going on? Or at home, the temptation is to withdraw. And yet we have a Savior who does not run, but he steps into the chaos of our life. Jesus enters into this situation without hesitation. So now we're going to look at the three reactions that we get as Jesus' glory is being revealed. And what's really interesting is that we get three groups of beggars. Look with me at your scriptures. Look with me at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So the demons beg Jesus. And they again beg in verse 12. They begged him saying, send us to the pigs. So the demons are begging Jesus. Now look with me at verse 17. We get, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So the townspeople are beggars as well. They're begging Jesus, just leave, just leave. And then third, look at verse 18. He was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that it might be with him. So we get all three of these groups as beggars who are coming to Jesus, asking him for something. We get three groups of beggars and yet very divergent, very different reactions. We'll look at each one. The first reaction that we get is begrudging submission. Verse 10 to 12. The demons bow before Jesus and then they beg him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And what we see is that Jesus gives them permission. Verse 13. He gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. There is huge financial loss. I don't know how much a pig cost in that day, but you know, to buy a roast pig, 
maybe in Chinatown, downtown LA, you know, that's a couple hundred bucks. So imagine 2,000. That's a lot of al pastor. That's a lot of meat here. That's a lot of tacos that we can make with that. 2,000 pigs rushing into the sea. Huge loss. And, and what's really weird is we don't really know what, uh, what happened to those demons. Like, is demon possession of animals normative? Is it not? It would sort of explain some of the behavior of our cats or, you know, I'm more of a dog person. But, you know, it, why demons and animals? The scriptures don't tell us. It doesn't say. Is that normal? What happened when the pigs drowned? All we know is that the demons are afraid of torture from Jesus. They know He's the judge. They recognize his authority. Even in this place where they've ruled, they recognize Jesus. They recognize the divine when he steps in and they beg for mercy. Whatever, wherever we can go, just let us go somewhere else. And so they show begrudging submission. They know that Jesus has the authority. He's the preeminent, the firstborn of all creation. He rules and he reigns and he sits at the right hand of the Father now. But at that time, this was God incarnate, walking among us. And the demons fall down in fear. And for the sake of the disciples, his glory was veiled for them in human flesh. And what we see is that the demons recognize it and they show begrudging submission. They don't worship him, but they bow. They don't praise his name. They don't love him. They don't treasure him. But they'll listen. And Jesus is the one who gives them permission. And so, they are begrudged. They're resistant. They're hardened. They want nothing to do with him. And yet, they will submit to him because they have no other choice. And sometimes we are like that. Sometimes we show begrudged submission. To our Lord. It's like the teenager who slams the door when he's told to clean his room. He'll show all the displeasure in the world, but he'll comply so he doesn't get in greater trouble. Or like us, we're no different. We might grudge, grit our teeth against God. We might come to this book and say, Oh, I guess I should read it. Pastor Jeremy's told me I should. Or maybe we'll come to prayer and think, Oh, I guess I should. But we do so with no joy. And no worship. And no heartfelt affection. And this is a word for us this morning. That do we recognize Jesus as the authority on your life. And yet fail to worship and treasure and love him as Lord. Do we give half-hearted and begrudging submission. We ought to worship this Jesus. Second reaction that we get is outright rejection. Look at verses 14 to 18. All of these pigs rushed down, and the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is amazing. You should be afraid when there's a demon-possessed man who can overpower anyone, ripping off his clothes, and that can beat anyone into submission. And they're afraid when they see a normal man sitting there, calm, collected, speaking in normal words, without a gravelly voice. What's going on? These people have gotten used to this man that was demon-possessed. And what else 
is that those who had seen it described to them what had happened. And they began to beg Jesus to depart. What they see is that they said, we've seen an exorcism, a casting out of a demon. And what's even more scary than a demon-possessed man is the one who can do the exorcism. We can't control that man. He doesn't bow. We can't leave him in the tombs. He might make demands on our life. He might do something else. We might get greater loss. He might tell us to change how we live. And so they're afraid, not of the exorcism itself or of the demon-possessed man, but the man who can do such things. Who is that man that can speak with the word? Jesus didn't use any fairy dust. Jesus didn't use a wand. He didn't use some concoction. He just spoke the words. And the man was made in his right mind. And 2,000 pigs rushed into a ravine. They're thinking, this is the single most amazing miracle we've ever seen. And it scares the living daylights out of us. And we don't know what to do with this man. And so they tell him to leave. They outright reject him. They just say, they say, Jesus, you made us lose a lot of money. We want nothing to do with you. They're comfortable in the way that they've been living. They want nothing to do with a Lord and a Savior who makes demands and authority and has the authority to make demands on their life. Their love of the status quo and their love of money blind them to the glorious reality of what has just taken place. They think, we just lost a lot of money. I was planning, I'm making plans, I'm selling that, those pigs to build a bigger house. And now, what am I going to do? And so, they are blinded to the glorious reality that God incarnate has just come into the world and made this man right, healed him. The uncleanness has been banished by Jesus' purity. And all they can see is the money that they've lost. They should have responded with worship and praise and awe. But they don't care. So, Jesus is... What Jesus is doing here is that Jesus is showing that he's not just some mild-mannered man. He's not Clark Kent, where occasionally he'll pull open the shirt... And show that he's Superman. But Jesus is God incarnate. He does what he wants and he has authority to make demands. He has the authority to cast out demons. And he has the authority to rule and to reign over all things. And these people say, we can't control this type of man. We don't know what to do with him. And we're not willing to worship him. So they reject him. For us, as we think about this, have we responded to Jesus in this way? Perhaps you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning. Perhaps you've never entrusted yourself to the Lord. Have you rejected him? Have you said, I don't want anything to do with him if he tells me to live this way or do this? Functionally, do we do this? In the way that we live, that we might come here Sunday morning, but during the week, we never pick up the Bible, we never pray, we never think of him. He makes no... Jesus has no influence over how we live day to day. Is that true of us? Do we trifle with sin because we minimize Jesus' authority on our life? He just loves me. That's all I want. And the third group is this, the man. 
And he shows worship and discipleship. Look with me at verse 18. It's, it's striking. Jesus grants the permission for the first two. The demons say, have mercy on us. He gives them mercy. The people say, leave our town. We don't want any part of you. Jesus says, okay, I'll leave. And the man now comes and says, as he's getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the first two are granted their requests, but this man is not. And what's striking about the wording here is flip with me one chapter back. Mark chapter, thir- chapter 3, actually, verse 14. Mark three fourteen, And this is Jesus calling the twelve disciples. And he says this, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So that they might be with him. Same wording here that's used here. Where the man says, he begged him that he might be with him. This man is not just saying, I want to go where you go, but I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. You've done all that I need. You must be someone important. You must be the Lord, Savior. And he's trying to follow him. He follows with worship and discipleship. And for whatever reason, Jesus does not grant the request. But he tells him to go and proclaim who he is. And the point for us to apply here is that this command that he gives him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, is the call for every disciple of Jesus. For every single one of us, hearing the sound of my voice, every single one of us, if you're trusting in Jesus, is to be called to that task. Go and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. How he has had mercy on you. Every single one of us can do that. We may not be eloquent. We may not be able to articulate the ins and outs of every theological nuance of salvation. And yet, we can say that the God of the universe created all things, made all things perfect, made man, and gave us the garden to live in. And yet, mankind sinned and fell short of his glory. We hated God. We became his enemies. Each one went to our own way. We said we wanted to be God. And so God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ into the world to not only live the perfect life we could never live, but to die the death so that we wouldn't have to die and to rise again so that we could be hidden with him and have life. And now Jesus calls every single person to either follow him or to make the decision to reject him. That's what... Every single one of us can do in 15 seconds, in 30 seconds. We are to proclaim Jesus and to tell others how much the Lord has done for us. Jesus may not have cast the demon out of you, but he certainly healed you and saved you and helped you overcome anxiety and fear and aimlessness and lust and anger and pride and sorrow. Jesus meets us in our need. And so that's what we're called to. Every single one of us is called to this. We're called to be intentional and obedient to this task. Every single one of us here has a sphere of influence, a workplace, a community that we're supposed to reach out to. And God has put you there. If this man didn't take his task seriously, imagine what type of loss there would have been. This, is, this man was sort of like a Gentile John the Baptist. He goes into these Gentile regions 
the Decapolis. It references about ten Gentile cities in that region. And he doesn't just tell his friends, but it says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is our task for First Baptists of Hacienda Heights to make an influence in this area. To reach lost people for Jesus. We need to speak of him. I think that's the word that we all need to take to heart. When was the last time you shared the gospel? Six months ago? More than that? There used to be a thing my wife and I used to do is that we would try to practice with each other. Give me the gospel in 30 seconds. Give me the gospel in two minutes. What would you say? What if someone asked you right now? Are you able to do that? I would encourage you, practice that. Have that paradigm in view, in your mind, so that it's just ready. When someone says, well, why do you go to church? Or... Why do you pray before you eat? You can just say, oh, can I share with you the big picture of the Bible, what the Bible means? It breaks down really easy. God, man, Christ, response, and then just to share it. That's what we're called to do. And consider for a moment how little this man knew about Jesus. How long was that encounter? 20 minutes? An hour? And now he's speaking boldly. I can't deny what I've seen and heard. He speaks boldly. He makes this his life. And yet we have been blessed with so much more. And we have the full inspiration of his word. So, what's being revealed here? Actually, if you'll look with me at verse 19 and 20, it's really striking. Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How much the Lord has done for you. How much God has done for you. And what does the man do? He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. That's what's taking place here. The Gospel writer Mark is saying, Jesus, not just normal man. He's the Lord. He's God incarnate. Come down into this world. It's the God of the universe. Humbled himself into the person of a man to walk among us so that he might bring healing and bring cleanliness into the places of uncleanness. So we've looked at three groups, the man, the demons, and the people, and we've seen three reactions to this revelation of Jesus. The demons respond with begrudging submission. The people outright reject Jesus, and yet the man responds with worship and obedience. And what I want to do is to apply these for us. We've done some of that, but I want to go a little bit more in depth. How will we respond? How will we respond? Will we be like the demons? Recognize Jesus' authority and yet refuse to worship. Begrudge him for not giving you what you want. I guess I'll go to church, but I'm not going to read my Bible. Or we might say, well, I guess, I guess he's Lord, and yet I don't find any joy in this. And just go through the motions. Will we, in our pride and arrogance, refuse to worship him? Or will we harden our hearts to Jesus? And the second response is the people's response. They see that Jesus is powerful. They've seen this glory display, this revelation of Jesus' glory, unlike anything else. And yet what they do, instead of worshiping, instead of saying, I want to know more, what is this power? They say, just get out of town. You've made us lose a lot of money. What if we get unwanted attention from Roman soldiers? We don't want any of this. And they just reject Jesus. 
Are we like that? Do we want nothing to do with God? Do we see his authority over all creation and yet refuse to bow our knee? You have friends, probably, who are like this. And we want to lovingly call them to trust in Jesus. Show them the beauty of Christ and pray that the eyes of their hearts would be opened to the beauty of Christ. And the third is this. Jesus is to be obeyed and proclaimed. The man responded by believing in him and wanting to be with him and to be his disciple. I want to go where you go, Jesus. He recognized his authority and he proclaimed his name far and wide. That's what we're called to do, every single one of us. If you see Jesus' glory in Mark 4 and 5, in Colossians 1, that he's preeminent, supreme over all creation, that he's Lord over nature, he's Lord over the demonic realm, and he's Lord over disease, he can do all things, he sits at the right hand of the Father. All power is at his disposal. And yet, this is not a Lord who's detached and unloving. Imagine how much this man loved Jesus. Jesus' compassion and care, going into the most unclean place to bring about holiness and cleanliness and healing. And so while this account, Mark 5, is a display of Jesus' glory, we see this even greater at the cross. This is Palm Sunday. Next week, we go to the cross. On Friday, we meditate on Jesus' death. And Sunday, we celebrate him being risen again from the dead. This is just a sign. Jesus breaking in to heal. Going into the most unclean places. Jesus has done that even greater work. He came into this world. And on his body he took all of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus came into the world and did the greater work. This is just a picture This is just crumbs for the feast we're going to have. Jesus has come in and banished every single sin you could ever commit. Nothing you've done can separate you from Christ if you've repented and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So Jesus has conquered sin and death. By his crucifixion, man was redeemed. He put Satan to open shame, Colossians 2. By his crucifixion, any accusation Satan would bring before God of you. Look what you've done. Look how you failed. Jesus says, it's been paid for. Look at my scars. It's been paid for. And so Jesus is on a mission to restore all things. And this account gives us just a glimpse of the greater reality. That God goes into the unclean places and makes it clean. This is the God that's for you this morning. This is the God that loves you. This is the God that you worship and that you serve. And hopefully it should awaken in us gratitude and joy and delight. We worship that kind of God who loves us and goes into our unclean hearts and makes us clean, washes us clean at great cost to himself. One final word I want to say is this is that Christians never have to fear demons. We serve a God where demons fall down before him. The one in us is greater than the one out there. 
We do not need to fear. Rather, we're on the offensive. We're not on the defensive. We're sent to go out and to proclaim. We're commissioned by Jesus himself with his power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me to give to you all. So that you might proclaim. So that you might pray for the lost. And so that God might save. And so don't go with sheepishness or fear. But God has sent all of us to proclaim his mercy and how much he's done for us to all who will listen. Close with me in prayer. Lord God, we stand in awe that you are a God who rules and reigns. You are a God who loves and cares for us. You step into the chaos of our life and you're not afraid. You look at the chaos of our friends' lives and you say, step into that, I'll go with you. And you meet us through your work on the cross for us so that at Calvary, every fear that we might have was banished. And you've healed us and made us new. And so I pray, Father, for all my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would walk in the joy and in the life that comes with reflecting on serving and loving and being loved by a Lord, our God, who is Lord over all. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.